Welcome to this NJ Spotlight Roundtable podcast. In this program, New Jersey's energy future, renewable energy. Governor Phil Murphy wants 100% of New Jersey's power to come from clean energy by 2050. That's an ambitious goal since only 4% of our current energy comes from sources such as solar or wind. How do we get there and what should our priorities be? That's the topic for today's podcast. Our experts take a realistic look at those targets and what it will take to reach them. The panelists for today's program are Larry Barth, Director of Corporate Strategy for New Jersey Resources Clean Energy Ventures, Barbara Blumenthal, Energy and Environmental Consultant and Research Director of the New Jersey Conservation Foundation, Stephanie Brand, Director of the New Jersey Division of Rate Council, Lyle Rawlings, President and CEO at Advanced Solar Products Incorporated, Vice President and Co-Founder of the Mid-Atlantic Solar Energy Industries Association, and Ross Tyler, Development and Strategy, Business Network for Offshore Wind. At the lectern to open the program is John Mooney, the founding editor of NJ Spotlight. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Uh, I'm John Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, and, and welcome to our roundtable event on renewable energy. Um, I'd like to think that we uh, planned it um, to coincide with yesterday's vote, and, I'm, and I'll, I'll profess we did. Um, but uh, certainly, we found an incredibly timely topic for New Jersey uh, to have this discussion, and really looking forward to it. For those who don't know us well, um, NJ Spotlight uh, was founded uh, eight years ago. We're actually nearing our eighth birthday. Um, good for us. And, um, and, and as a public policy site focusing on, on key public issues in New Jersey. Uh, but critical to that is live events like this. Um, we've always been of the belief that uh, there's a enough chatter going on online on these issues and, and it's really important for folks to get together and see each other and have these discussions um, and, and really, you know, have the conversations that are really sort of critical to, to making sound decisions on these things. Um, and, and we were close to 40 or 50 events by this point, uh, eight years in, um, and, uh, and really have, have garnered a following of folks who, who, who come out and, and really enjoy these conversations. I, I want to call out one in particular, Governor Florio is with us today. Um, <laughs> He's been, he's been a good friend of Spotlight, and, and uh, really appreciate you joining us. Um, and, and for those who uh, want to get involved with us as well and, and, and learn more, um, a, a couple opportunities we, on our website, uh, are now offering a, a daily newsletter uh, that comes out in the morning uh, promptly at 7 o'clock, and, and feel free to sign up for that. That's uh, free. Uh, we also invite you to become members, uh, a little less free. Um, but we appreciate the donations, and, and that is also available on the website. Um, for us to sustain ourselves, we also uh, a critical piece of what we um, a critical piece of our revenue is sponsorships for events like this. And I, I want to invite Steve Shallot, our business development director, to talk a little bit about that and, and to introduce some of our sponsors. So, uh, welcome, Steve. Good morning, everyone. I am Steve Shallot, Director of Business Development for NJ Spotlight. And <clears throat> pardon me, I wanted to thank our sponsors, without whom this would not be possible. So our presenting sponsors um, are New Jersey Resources, which is a Fortune, Fortune 1000 company providing natural gas and clean energy services. Its principal subsidiary, Nat New Jersey Natural Gas, has been in business since 1952, and its clean energy business 
NGR Clean Energy Ventures is one of the state's leading residential solar providers, and on the panel today is Larry Barth. Um, also want to thank Rethink Energy New Jersey, which makes the case for reduced use of fossil fuels and pipelines in New Jersey. Um, their case illustrates the threats to New Jersey's preserved lands, water, environment, public health, and communities. And their goal is a swift transition to renewable energy. On the panel today is Barb Blumenthal. Um, also want to thank Sunrun, which is the nation's largest dedicated solar energy company. Have been in business since 2007, designing, installing, financing, insuring, monitoring, and maintaining solar systems for homeowners. And they provide a solar as a service model, which provides clean energy to homeowners with little to no upfront cost. And their senior manager of public policy, Nicole Sitaraman, is going to um, speak in just a moment. And Nicole, if you want to get your, uh, your come up and, oh, you have it already. Probably mic okay, then uh, as soon as I'm done, we'll, we'll move to that. Um, also want to thank the Business Network for Offshore Wind, which is a not-for-profit organization focused on the development of the U.S. offshore wind industry. And from April 3rd to 6th, 2018, they will be hosting their fifth annual International Offshore Wind Partnering Forum in Princeton. That'll be the first time in New Jersey, expecting more than 800 attendees, along with a number of VIP speakers, including New Jersey State Senate President Steve Sweeney. And uh, Ross Tyler, a senior advisor, is on our panel today. And I believe uh, Bill O'Hearn, communications uh, director, is here as well. Um, also want to thank Resilient Solar Products. That is a consortium of leading New Jersey solar companies comprised of Advanced Solar Products, Spano Partners Holdings, and AF Mensa. Um, their focus is on solar plus storage and microgrids. And on our panel today is, uh, is Lyle Rawlings. And our supporting sponsors are TransTech Industries, who currently hosts an 11 megawatt solar project at the Kinsley's Landfill in New Jersey. I believe Dan Edwards might be here. And, uh, and lastly, KDC, KDC Solar, who manages projects in New Jersey and other mid-Atlantic states, delivering more than 76 megawatts of solar power. And I believe Alan Epstein and Tom Lynch are here. Um, thank you very much to our sponsors, making this possible very timely, and the support is greatly appreciated. And with that, I'd like to welcome Nicole Sitaranam from, from uh, Sunrun to uh, offer the first words for today, and then we'll move into the panel. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, thank you uh, to New Jersey Spotlight for coordinating this, this great event. I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, my name is Nicole Cedaraman. I'm a senior manager of public policy for Sunrun. And I'm just here to provide very brief remarks. I'm really anxious, actually, to, to hear this wonderful panel and what will be discussed today. Um, just wanted to give you a little bit of background about me uh, and about Sunrun. Um, so I am kind of Sunrun's point uh, for Mid-Atlantic legislative and regulatory affairs in Mid-Atlantic, and New Jersey is a top priority for our company. Um, I'm originally from Philly, um, and I've been uh, working on energy issues um, maybe for the past six or seven years. Uh, energy issues and advocacy actually run in my family, my mom is a paralegal at Community Legal Services in Philadelphia in the Energy Division, and she's been advocating for low-income consumers for, for many years. Prior to joining Sunrun, I worked in the DC Office of the People's Council, which is the statutory 
representative of uh, the District of Columbia's uh, utility consumers, and there I supported the People's Council on clean energy advocacy issues and PJM related matters, um, which is how I know Stephanie Brand uh, very well. Um, so I just wanted to give you a very brief uh, framework for how we are, are um, looking at these issues of um, our transition to a clean energy economy and why we do the work we do, why we're so passionate about providing solar as a service to residential uh, consumers. Um, no secret that we live in an era of climate change. It's the here and now. We saw what happened in Puerto Rico. We saw what happened in Houston. And certainly New Jersey is on the front line of uh, climate change, uh, uh, having experienced Hurricane Sandy. Um, we talk about climate change um, a lot in these energy circles, and sometimes folks um, get a little weary of, of raising it. But we have to keep that in mind, that there are communities on the front lines who are losing everything. They're losing everything because of severe weather events uh, that are, have been caused by um, our addiction to uh, fossil fuel um, uh, sources. Um, in addition to uh, why you know, we're so uh, passionate about providing solar to consumers, energy prices are, are not going down. They're, they're going up. Um, utility rates have increased significantly over the past uh, several years um, with an exclusive eye towards uh, expanding uh, capital investments, building more, more poles and wires. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're approaching this from the perspective of, you know, how can uh, solar customers uh, save money on their monthly bills and how can uh, uh, those who are using solar um, benefit the larger grid and, and utilities also. Um, as you know, Governor Murphy has made it very clear that he's concerned about environmental justice issues where communities of color um, are disproportionately impacted by pollution and carbon emissions. Uh, to be clear, communities of color, low-income communities are affected first and worst um, by uh, climate change and pollution. Um, and uh, so we are um, partnering with a variety of organizations, including the NAACP, including Grid Alternatives, to explore ways that we can expand access to solar uh, to com communities that need, them, need uh, it the most. Um, we're, though, though all of these things are happening, um, uh, we're continuing for some reason. Um, our focus, the energy industry at large, on a 60 plus year old approach to electricity. Um, there seems to be an unyielding focus on poles and wires, um, which we have seen are not enough to withstand the impacts of climate change. Um, and so we're looking towards um, uh, working with stakeholders to really devise a plan for uh, where our energy um, will come from in the future uh, in a more sustainable um, and resilient fashion. Um, and just to go back to the issue of utility capital expenditures, you know, there are a variety of, of uh, sources that believe those costs are going to be, uh, going to increase substantially more than 20% more than the price, any price increases for rooftop solar in, in the near future. Um, so we believe that distributed solar is central and indispensable um, to addressing rising energy costs, environmental justice issues, and climate change impacts. Um, and when, not if, but when New Jersey is, is faced with another major storm, um, we believe that rooftop solar combined with smart home technology like storage um, will be really effective for, for keeping the lights on, 
um, and enabling customers to um, continue keeping their homes running. Um, so to that end, you know, we, we support com consumer choice. This is about enabling customers uh, to choose solar. If they want to have rooftop solar, they should be able to have rooftop solar. And policies should be in place to facilitate that choice. Um, we're going to be talking a lot today, the panelists, about, about costs. And uh, my personal view, actually, is that you can't have a conversation about costs without a conversation about the benefits of whatever energy source. From our perspective, that's solar. Um, so solar brings many, many jobs, over 7,000 people in New Jersey employed. Um, when we're looking to employ more people, um, it provides savings to folks on their uh, monthly energy bills. The cost of solar is declining. And obviously, the, the air, the health benefits of solar cannot be overstated. Um, it helps to mitigate the impacts of polluting power. And particularly, again, for low-income and community, communities of color that are impacted uh, first and worst by fossil fuel combustion, uh, the, the public health benefits are, are, um, are uh, significant. Um, and again, solar plus storage, we believe, will provide tremendous benefits to the overall grid. Um, and we're very focused these days on exploring non-wires alternatives um, in a variety of proceedings across the country, and we hope to have that conversation here, here in New Jersey with, with you all. Um, um, so of, of greatest importance immediately is that we're hoping that policymakers here in New Jersey support rooftop solar um, in this legislative session, and uh, to, to in the short term, keep the, keep the solar market stable. And in the long term, we, we very much look forward to working with everyone to map out um, a sustainable, um, resilient energy plan. Um, so thank you again um, for this opportunity. And I look forward to the panel today. Thank you, Nicole. Um, and she reminded me, I, I want to mention that on March 16th, mark in your calendar, uh, we will be doing an event here again, um, a roundtable event on infrastructure, energy infrastructure needs. So um, hopefully you all can join us for that as well. Uh, Nicole mentioned uh, some of the issues around that, and it's, it's certainly critical for New Jersey. So let's get going. Um, this discussion um, is going to be led by Tom Johnson, our energy and environment writer. has been doing it for uh, 30 years uh, prior to Spotlight was with the Star Ledger and, and really knows these issues as well as anybody in the state uh, and a wonderful moderator. I'll mention that um, the way these work is, is Tom leads the discussion, but we also like to invite you uh, folks, if you have questions, um, to submit them to us. There are index cards on your tables. Um, basically, fill, uh, put your question on that and wave it to one of us who will be walking around. Uh, Steve and I will be on the outskirts of the room and we'll get those eventually, hopefully, uh, to Tom, who can try to incorporate them into uh, the discussion. Uh, beware, he doesn't get to all of them. Um, it, you know, it's, he, he's handling a few things up here, um, but uh, we'd like to include as much as we can, so feel free to do that. Also on your tables are some surveys, which we ask you uh, to fill out when you leave. Uh, it really helps us to know how our events do. Um, feel free to, you know, offer some uh, you know, some, some issues that we can improve upon as well because um, we, we like to continue to grow this event and, and obviously serve you guys. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Tom Johnson. Thank you, John. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, timing's good. Uh, this 
Uh, a lot is going on in the renewable energy world and energy world. Uh, so we'll get right to it. Uh, first off, we'll let uh, Barb Blumenthal, uh, research coordinator for the New Jersey Conservation Foundation, begin. Barb? If, okay. see my slides. Okay. Good morning. This is a very exciting time to be talking about clean energy in New Jersey for many different reasons. About two years ago we had this idea that this moment would come and that we wanted to be prepared to talk about how to scale up significantly renewables in New Jersey and a higher renewable portfolio standard. And we wanted to be able to talk about costs. So we started a study, and it took a year and a half to do it, where we asked a fundamental question, which is of interest to anybody who cares about climate change, how can we reduce emissions in New Jersey attributed to our consumption of electricity? How can we reduce our emissions by 50% by 2030? So that was that was the question we were trying to answer with this, with this model. And at what cost? So the first part, we learned in doing this that not only is it achievable, we can do it. Secondly, it's affordable, that it won't cost any more than business as usual. And I think that's a shock to most policymakers that I've talked to in this state. And we need to help them understand why that is. These are not crazy projections. This is, you know, not that we can predict the future, but there's many different ways that we've looked at this, and we see a path, we see many different pathways forward that don't cost any more money, and some pathways that cost less money than business as usual. So I think that's the exciting part of, of what we looked at. So this is a chart that shows one scenario of what we could be doing. And I'll tell you the truth, we simplified this exercise by saying we're only going to look at generation in New Jersey. We didn't try and model the PJM grid. So this is a simplification. We are part of a grid, which is a good thing because it will help us to do this at a lower cost. But for the purposes of this, we actually modeled something that's kind of on the upper end of what, how you might do it and what the cost would be. So by looking at New Jersey only, we said um, to reduce emissions by 50%, we can do it with a combination of offshore wind. In this exercise, we got to 3,250 megawatts of wind. We didn't get to 3,500 because we didn't need it to get to 50%, <laughs> so we stopped. So 3,250 megawatts of wind, about 8,000 megawatts of in-state new solar, and there's an assumption there that the new solar has a different incentive mechanism, that we go to something that's a more, less volatile, more cost-effective way of procuring solar. And the remaining is nuclear and gas. And so that's a, a scenario that reduces emissions by 50%. Um, can I go to the next slide? So it's achievable. The, and then math behind that said that it won't cost any more than business as usual. And this is the important thing. We're all doing this because of emissions. We have, sometimes we get, we lose track of that and we're talking about a lot of other business related issues, but this is why we're doing it. 
This is the 2050 goal that we have under the Global Warming Response Act to be at 80% reduced emissions. And our business as usual, that little bump is Oyster Creek going offline. So emissions are not projected to go anywhere but up or flat under the business as usual case. And the scenario that we laid out, if you had a straight line to this point, we're actually going below that, which is really important. We want to be on an aggressive pathway to reduce emissions, not just kind of limping along, because we know that by the time we get here, at some point, nuclear is going to go offline. So we need to be at an aggressive pathway so that we're ready when, whenever that happens. Um, so that's what we learned. And I'll maybe stop right there. Thanks. Thanks, Barb. Uh, next up will be Lyle uh, Rawlings. Uh, Lyle, you want to sit? You can sit or get up. Okay. Um, Whatever you want. I'll get up because okay. I have slides too. Slides, please. There we go. All right, next slide, please. I, I see a lot of people here. Good morning, by the way. Uh, I see a lot of people here who were in Trenton yesterday, uh, some of whom testified at the hearing on a big bill. Uh, you all have heard of it, I'm sure. It's a bill that has nuclear uh, support to keep nuclear plants open. It has solar in it. It's got wind in it. It's got energy efficiency and a few other things. It became a very big, complicated bill. Uh, some of those who testified, and, and I would single out in particular uh, Ralph Izzo and Jeff Tittle, actually agreed on something in their testimony. They agreed that the way, uh, not, a, not a lot, but one thing they agreed upon was that the way we're subsidizing solar is far too expensive. Ralph Izzo threw out some kind of scary sounding numbers. The solar industry actually recognized that a while ago. Now, the solar industry has a long history of fighting with itself and fighting in Trenton in particular about different ways to go in solar. But many in the solar industry recognized a little over a year ago that we, the SREC market was headed toward a crash again, uh, similar to the way it did in 2010 and 2011. And that uh, we, we, were, we were hosed if we didn't get together and stop fighting, get together with one voice, and figure out what to do about that because the solar industry was going to crash. And all of our businesses depend, uh, depend on that not happening. So uh, many of us got together, many in this room, Larry is one and Tom Lynch from KDC is another. We got together in a room to figure out what to do about it. Uh, and we knew that there had to be a raise in the solar RPS in order to keep things going, but we also recognized that we needed to move, as Barb just said, to a more efficient, less costly way if we were going to continue to build solar and continue to grow solar toward these renewable energy goals. So, uh, so we understood that there were several things that had to happen uh, we worked with Senator Smith to craft a bill around that, and that actually became part of this bigger omnibus bill that we all saw yesterday. And we, we realized that we had to do, <coughs> we had to do three things <coughs> uh, over time as this progressed. One was to keep the industry working for a couple of years, because we, we can't transition to a new incentive program tomorrow. 
We have to figure out what it's going to be. We haven't done that yet. We have to craft legislation around it, then the BPU would have to do, uh, would have to do regulation around it, then they hire somebody to administer the program and then they launch it. That's gonna take time, probably years. So in the meantime, if we wanted to keep the industry working, we had to raise the RPS somewhat. And what we recommended is that we raise the RPS enough to just keep the industry working at steady state. No growth right now, just cooking along the way we are now. So that's the circle at the top. Uh, we also knew that because SREX uh, as a system of incentives are too expensive, we would have to sunset or close the SREC market so that a new system could take over at that point. It has to be closed to, to bring that to an end. So that's the circle on the right. And then uh, later on, as things went on and there was a lot of pressure about costs, et cetera, uh, the industry got together and said, well, we could cut back on the SACPs, which set the upper end, the upper limit for the actual price of SREX. So that's the circle on the left. We, we reduce the rate impact and sort of pay for this RPS raise, partly, that we talked about uh, by, by reducing the SACP. But, but at a level that legacy projects that are already in the ground don't go underwater. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, now, these, these are the folks who got together. There, there was a much broader group of solar companies that sort of elected uh, some people to represent them to work on the, uh, on the actual language and work out what we would actually do. Uh, so there were several industry associations and a couple of single companies. Next slide, please. Now, one of the things, this is analysis that was done by Larry Barth uh, and the folks at NJR. Uh, I participated and helped a little bit. But it showed that uh, if, if we take publicly available data about what SRECs have paid projects in the past, projects that are already operating, and what it cost, according to US government figures, to build in New Jersey at, at these different years, some of the older projects that were built, as you can see in this graph, between 2020 and 20, or 2010 and 2012, this is a graph of the internal rate of return that projects would get uh, if we uh, project forward what they'll be paid in the future and add in what they've paid in the past. Uh, several years, some of the older projects are, are already in distress. They have uh, rates of return in the 4 or 5% range, which is too low for the investors to make money. Uh, then it got better and better as the cost of solar got to be less and less, and everybody gets paid the same SREC. The more recent projects are doing okay. Uh, still below what the BPU projected projects should make. The, the program was supposed to be designed to produce an internal rate of return about 12%. None of the projects are getting above that. They're still below it, but more recent projects are close. Projects that are built on average in 2014 and 2015 are doing pretty well. Uh, averaged over the whole co cohort, the whole fleet of projects in the ground, they're making about an 8% rate of return. It's a fairly modest rate of return. So uh, projects are not getting the windfall, but if things are cut too much, many of these projects are gonna be so far underwater that the people who invested in good faith, invested $9 billion in New Jersey, would be seriously in economic distress. So that's something that any policy going forward needs to take into account, that the, we have to be fair 
to all those who invested. And it's not just fat cat investors from Europe or, or Texas or wherever. It's schools who wrote bonds. It's thousands of homeowners that paid cash for their solar power systems. It's municipal buildings, hospitals, um, hundreds of New Jersey businesses uh, that would be in this economic distress. We've got to be careful about them. Next slide, please. Um, now, what we thought and what Senator Smith thought was that we would have to close the SREC market as soon as possible. The sooner we move to a lower cost incentive system, the more we'll be able to build solar at a lower cost to ratepayers. And that testimony yesterday made clear is now a societal imperative. We need to keep building solar, but we need to do it at dramatically lower cost. And we can. In order to do that, we have to close the SREC market. And so the new RPS curve that uh, going into the future that was put into this bill initially peaked out at 5.3% solar uh, as a percent of all the, uh, all the kilowatt hours sold, and then declined over time so that we could uh, bring the SREC market to a close and substitute a new and lower cost system. Now, one of the curious things that's not well appreciated about that is that if you look at this graph, what was proposed is the RPS goes higher than current law. The blue line is current law, the green is what's proposed. So it does go higher, and it goes higher to provide us the ability to keep the industry working, just at steady state, so that we don't lose the thousands and thousands of jobs, perhaps as much as 10,000 jobs in this state. We don't want to lose jobs. So it went higher, but then it went lower. So when you look at the cost over time, uh, this bill, even if it, in its previous form, going up to 5.3%, actually saved money over time because the cost goes higher for a period of time and then it, then it goes lower. If you look at the area above the blue line and the area below the, the blue line, uh, there's actually a savings for a net lower cost over time. Now, that's only part of the story because we're also going to add costs with whatever that new system is that we're going to come up with together, hopefully. But uh, that new system will be so much lower in cost that we can still uh, have a very, very modest cost over time. But the bill as is right now, it saves money over the long term. According to uh, calculations, again, done by Larry and NJR, it saves about $1.6 billion dollars. Over the, over the course of time. So lower cost over time for this bill. Then we have to add whatever we're gonna do in the future to continue to grow solar. So that's the first point I wanted to make. Now there's problems with this bill now, big problems. This theory that I just outlined was in the bill. It was gonna close the SREC market, it was gonna keep the industry working, and it was gonna lower cost to ratepayers. Re very recently, within the last couple of weeks, amendments have been done where the provision to lower the cost, to, to close the SREC market was removed from the bill. Now, I'm aghast at this. I can't imagine why anybody would have taken that out of the bill. It was an essential part of the bill in the solar language. If we don't close the SREC market, then I guarantee you we're going to be back here in another year to three years with another crisis for the solar, with then 100,000 solar system owners saying, you've got to rescue us again. We're going underwater. And we'll be right back in this mess. 
So I, I really hope that the legislature sees its way clear to restore that essential part of the bill and provide for the closure of the SROC market. That's a big, big problem with this bill right now. It needs to be fixed. Uh, it also cuts the pace of solar construction by 40%. That would mean the loss of thousands of jobs, and we hope they can address that as well. So we've got problems to work on. Uh, looking forward into the future, we really have to be very careful about costs, but like Barb said, we can do it. We can do it in a very cost-effective manner. That's it. Thanks, Lyle. Uh, next up is Ross Tyler, who flew up here from Houston. We appreciate him coming from the Business Network for Offshore Wind. He's going to talk a little bit about another renewable. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Tom. Um, so I don't have slides for you, but I am going to stand because I can't see you at the back from where I am down there. Um, Tom has asked me to make a few um, sort of comments about the challenges for, uh, for renewables and to uh, make that relevant for offshore wind in my opening remarks. But before I do that, I'd like to start off with some good news, which is I first came to the United States, I know I've got an odd accent, but I first came here um, in 1985, and I arrived in New Jersey, and I've stayed ever since. Not in New Jersey, but I've stayed in the United States. But the good news is that subsequent to that, you know, the, the whole name or the word renewables has become a household name. And I think that's something to be celebrated. And uh, you know, I think it's really only in the last 10 years that renewable energy has really um, been accepted and embraced by not just um, by the energy companies, but also by, by the politicians and also by, uh, by, by households. So that's good news. Um, I have other good news, which is related to offshore wind. Um, we... So, so for those of you, and I think there's quite a lot of people who are familiar with solar, maybe not so familiar with offshore wind. So if, if, if I may, I'll just quickly share where we are with offshore wind. So we are all dependent on the federal government, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, to lease the ocean anything that is three miles offshore. Anything beyond, so anything closer is regulated by the state, but anything outside of three miles is regulated by the federal government. So it, we're dependent on Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM, to actually do the leasing. Uh, and that's where the wind, offshore wind resources are. They're in federal water. So we're dependent on the federal government to do those leases. And the good news is that we have lots of area already leased by BOEM. So we have, uh, we have area um, any, from Virginia or North Carolina all the way to, to Massachusetts. So in the Northeast, we're primed, ready to go. The other good news is that the Europeans started offshore wind 20 years ago. So in 2016, they finished with 15,000 megawatts of offshore wind, over 3,000 turbines installed. Why is that relevant? It's relevant because they are doing us a favor, or they have done us a favor. They started off with turbines less than a megawatt in size, and they have spent the last 20 years taking the hits on our behalf 
and growing and advancing that technology. And today, the standard offshore wind turbine, or, or I should say the latest size offshore wind turbine, is nine and a half megawatts. This is adding efficiency to the industry, to the technology. So, and they have also taken the hits on deployment. Working in the environment is not easy. So we are blessed, really. We have a huge market, we have a huge potential, and also from, the, from Washington DC or Northern Virginia up to, to Boston, we have a third of the nation's population. We have a third of the nation's population and we have a wind resource that's somewhere between 10 and 30 miles off our coastline. So it makes sense to consider offshore wind as a, as a resource. Now, specifically the challenges that we are facing is that whilst we have the federal government doing the leasing of the offshore wind areas, the procurement of the energy is state dependent. And this is a decoupling between the federal and the state governments for this particular industry. And what that means is that we have different states doing procurement at different times, at different rates, rates in terms of times, and probably uh, rates in terms of power uh, costs, but also um, we also have different developers. So one of the challenges that we face within the, within the industry as we ramp up is that we have a fragmented pipeline. And the business network for offshore wind is really a, an, it's, not, it's not a trade association. We are an organization to try to facilitate with information and give uh, education because with this fragmented pipeline, we are trying to um, build and support a domestic supply chain. The Europeans have uh, 96,000 people employed in offshore wind. It's not just producing the turbines, it's not just putting, the, putting them in the water, but it's also manufacturing the components. The more we can do here in the United States domestically to manufacture those components, to have our own supply chain, the better it's going to be, one, in terms of manufacturing, bring manufacturing back, we get higher employment, but we're also producing clean energy as well. So our role is to try to bring everybody together and to share information and to try to support the supply chain in order to increase the efficiency and to lower the cost of offshore wind so that it can um, compare uh, with other renewable energies. Thanks, Ross. Now, uh, Larry Barth of New Jersey Resources Clean Energy Ventures. Larry. Testing? Oh, it works. Okay. Um, good to see so many familiar faces here. It's, it's been a while, but uh, really pleased to be here today. So what I wanted to focus on really was um, thinking about the goal. I mean, the 100% clean energy goal. You know, how do we think about it? Uh, I'll, I'll share with you how I think about it. But I think that's really um, you know, what we're here to talk about today. Um, first thing is, um, it's an extremely um, uh, important goal. Uh, it's something that I think we can all get excited about in terms of all the change and transformation 
and quite frankly, opportunity that's going to be able to, be, to happen as a result of the changes that we're looking for. Um, it's something that we have to do. It's something that we have to, to focus on. Um, I th would also say that it is an aspirational goal. Uh, there is a monumental amount of change that needs to happen to go from the current uh, stance that we're in right now, which is about 4% of the total energy mix coming from renewables to 100. Uh, that's a big goal. So right, right now we have about 3 million uh, megawatt hours from solar on a 75 million megawatt hour base. But it's not just going from three to 75. Now we're going to double it, too, because we're going to electrify transportation. We're going to electrify uh, some of the heating needs. So you're not just taking over what you do now. You're also doubling it. So you think about that from the context of you know, billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars, potentially, that you will need to be able to make that transformation. You think about all the millions of people that are going to have to be part of that and the decisions that they make uh, as consumers. And you think about the political will that we're going to need to do this too as well. And that was on full display uh, for those of you that were at the hearings uh, these past couple of days. So the fact is there's been tremendous progress uh, in, the, in the decline in the cost of these renewable technologies. It's really amazing and I think it gives us a lot of faith uh, in technology and what technology can do uh, to help us in this transition. Uh, but the fact is these resources are still more expensive than conventional sources of power and there's really no way uh, around that right now. Over time that's going to improve, uh, <clears throat> but they are more expensive. And we're in a state where costs are an issue and we sort of heard some of that loud uh, and clear the other day. Um, you know, as, as Lyle mentioned, we were involved just from the solar perspective in trying to get an extension to keep the industry going. Uh, we're kind of happy that we came out of there with a 1% increase in the, in the RPS that's going to take us for the next three years. So 1% down, another 95% to go. Uh, it's hard. You know, there's, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of uh, work that has to be done to get us to move uh, the needle here. Uh, as I think about some of the things that, you know, some of the things that we really need to get to, you know, what do we do Monday morning to try to, to, try to move the needle here? Uh, just a couple of quick questions I'll, I'll put on the table here. Maybe we'll discuss these today. Um, first of all is, I know we talk a lot about the electric grid, but what about transportation? I mean, that is 52% of the greenhouse gas emissions right now, according to, to my calculations. Uh, I see data that says that the cost of electric vehicles relative to internal combustion engines, uh, that, that's going to be a crossover point at some point soon. Uh, that seems like a really uh, low-hanging fruit and a good way to get some real traction soon without having to spend a lot of money from a state perspective, given the economics. Energy efficiency, we, we see that, you know, the state right now is not doing as well as it could relative to other states. Uh, relative to its potential, um, but just going from a 0.6% performance now to 2% in the future, that just is not going to happen if you just put that on paper. How are we going to change the whole delivery and implementation model to get this happening much faster uh, so it's a much easier, quicker decision? If, Barb, if your study's right and it's only 40 to $50 a megawatt hour to do energy efficiency, then that's the cheapest 
form of supply we've got out there? And, and does that change the model and how we go to market? Solar, if we're going to do a lot more solar, we're going to have to do a lot more larger scale solar. We're going to have to change some of the models. We're already talking about community solar, community choice solar, virtual net metering. All those things are going to have to be on the table. Where are we going to get the land to do that? Interconnection costs are going up. Um, you know, all those things are in the mix. We're going to have to be talking about net metering at some point. You know, and as Lyle said, we're going to have to figure out this transition from what we're doing now from an SREC perspective to what we want to do next. Uh, be interested to hear a lot about offshore wind today. We see a lot going on out of state. We see, Mar uh, we see uh, Massachusetts, New York uh, making a lot of progress there. Um, but, uh, you know, how do we pull this whole supply chain thing together? There's a lot of things uh, to do at the same time. You know, kind of the work that I see coming out of New York and Massachusetts in terms of their planning and their thinking and, and all the effort behind it, there's just a ton of work that's going to need to be done at the state level uh, to make this happen. So I'd be interested in learning more about that. Uh, one thing we're not talking about when we talk about nuclear now is if you do happen to be successful in this 2% energy efficiency goal each year and you get this offshore wind going like you want to and you keep building three to four hundred megawatts of solar you know come 2030 you're gonna have a problem with all that resource competing with the nuclear that's running at the same time that has to run and I think we need to really be thinking about that from a resource plan standpoint uh, is that's gonna create some issues so Tom you may have some great uh, articles in 2028 about how we're having to shut off the wind farms or the solar farms uh, or how we have negative prices now and you got to pay more for Zex because energy prices are down, uh, or how we're shipping all our clean energy to Delaware. So I think all that stuff needs to be thought through as we do this stuff. We talk about the declining cost of renewables, but you know, one thing we don't talk a lot about is the declining value. And uh, you know, I'm somebody that's been in this business for a while, but I think what we need to think about is the more you add, the less valuable it is. So you add more renewables, energy prices go down, makes it less valuable for the next resource to come online. The capacity values decline as well. You shift the peak from late afternoon to the evening. So you still need all those resources backing you up. So all that stuff needs to be thought through even when you do get to the point where it's competitive from a cost standpoint. You know, you now say, if I'm going to build the next project, maybe it's not so economical, unless the whole structure of how rates, compensation, and such are set is changed. Storage. Everybody talks about storage. That's going to be a really big piece of it. Uh, storage is great for, our, for seconds, for minutes, for hours, for moving power from within a day. It's not going to solve a problem moving power from today to next week or today to next month, or across seasons. It's not going to be economical. So when you start to get to large concentrations of renewables where you have a lot of excess generation, uh, you know, what, you're, what you're generating in the summer is not going to help you in the winter on an economic basis for storage. What about all the things we have to do to the electric grid right now to be able to make it so that it's leveraging all these distributed resources? You know, we're not there right now. We're still in the one-way power grid. You're going to have to set this up to be able to 
dispatch and integrate and leverage all these resources into how the electric utility industry does business. And you're going to have to change the electric utility industry. You know, the folks in New York are really thinking about this uh, pretty hard. Uh, and then there's technology out there too, and all the technologies uh, that we're not talking a lot about today that really could be playing a big role in the future. And if we look at what we've accomplished so far with technology, I think that's something we could really think about positively in terms of impacting the future. I think about things like uh, fusion, uh, nuclear fusion, uh, which doesn't have the toxic plutonium to deal with. Uh, think about building integrated solar, where now every house has its siding, its roof shingles, its windows with solar. Suddenly, you've got a lot more solar out there. You don't have to worry about the land. You think about superconductive transmission, taking power from the Midwest, bringing it to here. That's a game changer. You think about hydrogen. You think about uh, the ability to turn some of that excess solar and wind through water into hydrogen, mixing it with methane, reducing the, the, uh, the emissions content of gas, and then eventually moving to a full hydrogen economy. So there's a lot of things to do. There's a lot of things uh, to think about. And uh, let's get started. OK. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I think I know most of the people in this room. I think I saw at least half of you yesterday. Um, and I, I come with a little bit of a different perspective, <laughs> as you might imagine, because I, I have to look at everything, right? I, we, my office represents the ratepayers. We represent the people who pay for everything that Larry just talked about. And um, I also, we, all, we not only look at wind and solar and energy efficiency and electric vehicles and all of those things, but we also look at the pipes and wires. And I'd like to give a little shout out to the pipes and wires because that's what's keeping your lights on here in this room today. And we still need the pipes and wires and we still need a functioning electric system as we move to the future. Um, and it's all, um, it all costs money. Every single one of these things all costs money. And I talk to Lyle on a regular basis, and Lyle has important interests and, and important things that he, the solar industry wants to do, and Larry as well. I talk to the wind people on a regular basis. I talk to Barb almost every day. Um, and I, I appreciate that you, you're trying to, to make affordability uh, an, an equal um, foot in the stool. Um, because it really is important, and that's the thing. We want it all. I know we want it all, but we can't necessarily have it all. Um, people need to be able to afford to pay for their electricity. Um, you know, I hear the nuclear industry saying we need an 18% return. I hear the solar industry saying, oh, you know, we're only making an 8% return. And I say to myself, you know what? Most of the people who are paying those bills haven't seen an increase, a real increase, in their income in probably 10 years. I know as a state employee, I have not seen an increase in my income for 10 years. So, you know, we do have to pace this. We can't do it all at once. It's got to be done in a way that is measured, that is incremental, and that is thought through. Uh, the governor ran on um, calling for an energy master plan uh, immediately, which I think be a terrific idea because then we can start looking at everything 
um, figure out what we can afford to do now, what maybe we can't do for a year, what maybe needs to be put off for the next three years, five years, ten years. Um, but unfortunately, um, the circumstances have gone, gotten away from us, and now we have, as somebody <laughs> referred to it, um, the one bill to rule them all um, <laughs> that is currently making its way through the legislature. And, um, you know, it, I, I personally, I think the surest way to make sure that we don't achieve our goals is to try to do everything all at once. The public, once the, pu the rates go up and once the public sees what's going on, they're going to revolt. There's going to be a backlash. And if we do not take the time to figure out what to do first, what to do next, and what to do after that, then we're, we're actually dooming ourselves to failure. We're not going to achieve our clean energy future. Um, in terms of solar, I, I, we have actually come to a place where we all agree that we need to find a better way to pay for it. Um, I dispute some of Lyle's numbers. I think when he said that the reduction in, by closing the, the, um, the SREC market, it achieves a $1.6 billion savings, that's not over, compared to what we're paying now under the current bill. I think it's compared to maybe some other proposals that had been made earl earlier. Because that proposal that he was talking about that was in that bill adds a billion dollars to the ratepayers' exposure for solar. And that's, that's uh, adding a billion dollars to a number that's in the $5 billion range. Now that's over a long period of time, right? It's from 2018 to 2033. But if we're gonna spend $6 billion on 5% of our generation, we're never gonna be able to afford all the things that we wanna do. Um, in terms of the wind, I'm excited to see us talking about it again. We, our office actually signed off on the um, proposal that had been made a few years ago for a wind farm off of Atlantic City. We found that it did meet the net benefits. We looked at both the, the environmental benefits and the economic benefits, and ultimately were able to negotiate a price that, that did meet the uh, net benefits test. Hopefully we'll be able to do that again. I, I, I don't know <laughs> what, what's happened. It's kind of, we kind of took a pause. Um, in terms of energy efficiency, again, we really do need to get going, but we need to do it in a way that is much more uh, affordable, because <laughs> there's no way that energy efficiency should not be uh, pass a cost-benefit test. And yet, what we're seeing is a lot of proposals from uh, people saying, well, we don't get paid enough to do that. We want decoupling, we want to now earn, we want credit for all the lost revenues that associate, are associated with energy efficiency, to which we sometimes will say, okay, go ahead and show us what you've, what you've accomplished, and everybody, they just, they, all they do is they look at, you know, what were people using before, what are they using now, and it doesn't take, they, they're taking basically credit for climate change. They're taking credit for our warm winters. They're taking credit for our hot summers. And that's just not fair. It's not fair to the ratepayers who are the ones who are actually doing the energy efficiency in the end. And so we need to figure out a way to pay for the energy efficiency, to organize it, to do it in a, in a, in a much more aggressive manner. But we also need to make sure that the benefits go to the ratepayers because that is our cheapest source of electricity and it is something that I think people would love to do um, if they can and if they could afford it. Um, Larry mentioned the transportation sector, which I think is a really important point. In terms of meeting our emissions goals, 
Um, it's very, very important. Obviously, a lot of our emissions right now come from the transportation sector. But I have to say, you cannot ask electric and gas ratepayers to pay for the trans um, transformation of the transportation sector. Um, the fact is that there's just not that much money left. There are a lot of people who use the transportation sector. There are a lot of people who, who pay handsomely for, um, you know, already the gas tax went up. And if you, if you electrify the transportation se uh, sector, you've got to come up with a way for those people to pay for the roads, for the people using the electric vehicles to pay for the roads. You've got to find a way to make this a competitive industry the way that the gas stations and, and things like that are now. We can't just put it on the backs of ratepayers because the ratepayers not only have to pay for the solar and they have to pay for the wind and they have to pay for the energy efficiency and, and they'll probably have to put in something for electric vehicles, but um, e even if I, I, I yell and scream that they shouldn't. Um, but we also have to pay for the pipes and the wires, right? Because they're not going away tomorrow. And we have to pay for the nuclear plants and we have to pay for, the, for, for just for everything. So when I hear people say, I want an 18% return, um, I, I just, I, I shake my head because, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to talk about things like community solar and, and bringing clean energy to everybody. And I believe in that and I think it's important. But if they can't pay their electric bill, none of it matters. So um, I just think we really need to take the time. This bill is, is a monster. I don't think it's going away. Um, but it's not a good way to make policy, and it's not the way to do this. We need to have an energy master plan. We need to take the time to really consider these things. Uh, right now, I, uh, my heart goes out to my friends at the BPU because simultaneously they're going to be reviewing the financial status of nuclear plants, developing offshore wind regulations, um, revamping how we pay for solar, uh, uh, setting up an entirely new energy efficiency uh, program and the way we pay for it. And I, I'm studying energy storage. I could go on and on and on. And, um, you know, I'll, we'll be there to help. <laughs> I promise you that. But uh, it's just, it's a lot. And I, I really am, I fear that the whole thing is going to crumble under its own weight. And I, and I hope that doesn't happen. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, she raised a lot of good points, and I think uh, other panelists also raised the same, same issues in different ways. But is it time to say, uh, with this one bill that rules all, to separate it out and say, let's take the time to do the clean energy uh, section uh, separate? Uh, let the nuclear bill fall or, or rise or fall on its own merits. I think that decision's been made on its already. But to get things right in the renewable energy sector, should we separate the bills and take the time to do it right on the renewable energy part? Barb? <laughs> well, he specifically told us not to talk about the bill. I have to talk about the bill. I already went there, though, so uh, yeah. so it's here. A lot of us went there. Uh, I think it is. I, I think uh, you know we we all felt that the uh, the, okay. the 
there was a solar bill that was extremely carefully crafted uh, that, that did a lot of things right. And uh, when it got into the nuclear bill, things started to go haywire. I think we wound up with something that, that uh, is considerably flawed uh, in its solar language, and maybe taking it out would help uh, get it right. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's in there to stay. Uh, so I think we're just going to have to work on that, uh, you know, from my point of view, the solar language, and, you know, put back some of the things that, 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 that inexplicably got taken out uh, that are vital to, you know, to the ratepayer interests. Uh, and, and yesterday I talked to a lot of people and nobody's owning up to who took that out, right? <laughs> Nobody, everybody agrees that it should have been in there and, and uh, you know, I, I can't find out who thinks that it was the right thing to do to take it out. Yeah, uh, but that solar bill wasn't moving on its own when it was a separate bill. Yeah, uh, well, we, we thought it was, but <laughs> anyway. Okay. Uh, about, uh, but I agree with you. How about you, Larry? Yeah, I'm not going to second guess, you know, what all the decisions were in terms of, you know, putting this in as one bill versus a second bill. I think this is all sort of a little bit water under the dam at this point. I think going forward, we learn from this and we say um, we need to do an, a much better job with sort of integrated planning, integrated resource planning. That should be really informing our policy decisions, and that should then be driving any legislative actions that we take, uh, not the reverse. So hopefully we can uh, regroup from this and, and have a little bit more of a rational process in the future. Anybody else? Well, you know, again, I, I, I agree it's probably one or under, I usually say one or under the bridge, under no, a dam. I don't know. I think the, a, we don't want... <laughs> um, so... Um, I have hydro I, <laughs> <laughs> um, But I, I do think that it's not going to end here, right? I mean, a bill's going to get, of some sort, is likely to get passed. Um, and whether it has whoever, I don't know where any of the changes have come to this bill either. It's, it's not been a process where um, the stakeholders have all been brought together to discuss their differences and, and try to work it out. Um, but uh, I think something is going to pass and it's gonna be a, a comprehensive bill. It's not gonna be a, a, a nuclear only bill. But I think that that's not the end of the discussion, right? Because there are deadlines in this bill that are just, you know, really can't be met. And there are deadlines that are going to get missed. And it's unclear what happens then. And I, what I'm, I'm afraid about is th seeing something like what we saw with the wind, where we actually have a very good wind statute in this state. People, we worked on that for a lot of time. We actually got that passed, you know, in a, in a Republican administration. It's a good bill. It's a good statute. The problem's not with the statute. The problem is that there, we, you know, it, it never got implemented. So I'm, I'm worried about that. I'm worried about the fact that there are going to be, there's so much in this bill. There's so many things being given to so many people. There's going to be so much litigation that's going to ensue that none of those deadlines are going to be met. And it's not going to be anybody's fault. It's going to be because they, you know, you can say you're going to do something in five days and that doesn't mean it happens. Um, so that's what I'm worried about is what happens next is because we're setting up goals that just can't be met. Okay, uh, I'll ask some questions from the audience. Why, uh, this to you, Lyle, why sunset the uh, RPS uh, when you um, closed 
in order to close out the SPEC program? Well, I, I think the agreement that we're hearing here in the panel that, that we do need to stop the SREC system and move to a new and lower cost system is widely recognized. I, I really don't know anyone at this point who, who thinks that that's not true. So how do you do that? You've got to close out the SREC market in order to start something new and lower cost. And that's what the bill, uh, the solar provisions of the bill were originally designed to do. Uh, and you've got to close it carefully to protect those $9 billion, and by the time we close it, it'll be 10 or $11 billion. You've got to protect that, that $11 billion of investment that's already in the ground and operating and treat it fairly. So the, the, the bill had elegantly crafted language to do that in a balanced fashion so that we could move on to a new system. Now, there's no doubt it creates a burning platform. It, it gave us two years or so to come up with something new, and it was closing out the old, so it meant that we have to come up with that something new in, in two to three years. So no doubt, uh, and the solar industry was behind this. Uh, you know, we, we realized it was creating for us a burning platform to come up with that something new. But hey, we're, we're used to pressure in the solar industry. Should, uh what, what should the new system look like? Uh, if you're asking my opinion, uh, the, the solar industry association that I lead, the Mid-Atlantic Solar Energy Industries Association, uh, thinks that the best new course forward is a tariff similar to what Massachusetts did. We have to realize that New Jersey is the last major solar market to have an SREC system. Massachusetts was, was the last, and they've moved uh, to a tariff system. We think something very similar to that uh, is the best move here, and analysis shows it would be the lowest cost to ratepayers, and particularly uh, stretches that cost out over time so that the initial five years or so, the cost of that new system would be very, very low. There's a lot of other things to recommend it that, that I won't go into now, uh, but um, there's other models, too, that are good models that other states use. New York has a model that's great. Uh, Delaware does, too. There's Massachusetts, as I mentioned. So we have choices here. We just have to get moving, and that's what bothers me about this bill. Uh, it doesn't start that movement. It fails to do so, and the results could be catastrophic for all these investors with uh, things in the ground already and for ratepayers going forward. We, I, I, I really hope that in the assembly or someone uh, puts that language back in the bill again. Um, but um, what I also heard yesterday is cost is a huge issue and not just for Stephanie Brand now, for everyone. And um, I, I hope we get to talk about that today. There's cost and there's also the cost if we don't act for clean energy. We are trying to do a lot of things, but we're really only trying to do one thing, create a clean energy future. That's essential, and the cost of not doing it, uh, I hope we can get into, because the cost of not doing it is, is far in excess of any of the costs we've talked about today. The cost of not doing it is enormous. Do any of the other panelists have any thoughts on what this system, new, a new system should look like? Well, one thing I, I guess I would point out is that SRECs are only one of several subsidies that, that the, the um, solar industry gets. Net metering is actually a very large subsidy for, for solar projects because um, they are putting 
electricity into the system um, basically at wholesale, but getting reimbursed at the retail rate. So, so there is a, a significant subsidy there, and, and that needs to be factored into when we look at what we're paying for solar. I, what I think is, and what, what, what Lyle is talking about is something we call a feed-in tariff, um, which basically guarantees a, a particular level of income uh, for the solar de uh, developers, for the solar projects. And I, I've never supported that because at this point, uh, you know, I know that there are a couple of representatives here from, from the business community, and they don't get guaranteed profits. They, they certainly don't. And, and to, to move to that, I think, would be a, a tremendous mistake. I think that, that a large portion of the solar industry now can survive only on the net metering um, subsidy and that they should be able, given the, the, the drop in costs um, for panels and things like that, um, they should be able to make money without um, th those, those additional subsidies, and, and those should be phased out. Now, maybe we phase them out in a, um, in a measured way, so you start with the ones, like the largest projects that, that really should be able to, um, to make money uh, without these, these subsidies. Maybe you gradually bring, you know, lower those thresholds, um, but... I just think that we can't keep to, we can't assume that we're going to keep paying this these levels of subsidies forever for the solar industry. At a certain point, they have to be able to make money. And I think in other states, I know that you know, for example, um, in in other states, you see our our own electric utilities doing solar through their unregulated entities. And they're not getting the levels of subsidies they're getting in New Jersey, and they're doing fine, and they continue to do it. So obviously, you know, we're doing something wrong here. We're over, we're over subsidizing. And I'm not saying we, we certainly don't want the industry to go, go away, but I'm t I, I really do think that we need to, we can't pay $6 billion for 5% of our generation. It's just, you know, we need to start phasing it out. Well, I, I, I have to reply to that, I'm sorry, Tom, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm very disturbed to, to hear those remarks. Um, the fact is, it's very, very easy to identify how much a solar project needs to get paid in order to get built. Um, it can be identified very, very accurately. Uh, we know what money costs. It costs 7 or 8% right now. We know what the solar system costs. We know what it produces. It's a dead simple calculation to figure out what it needs to, to, to be paid in order to work. So what we need to do is find the way to do it that pays it the least. What we absolutely don't want to do, and I hope Stephanie will agree with this, is we don't want to overpay. So we know what it takes to get the solar built. We want to pay that. We don't want to pay more than that. So we want to pick the methodology that does that and that's really easy to identify. I mean, we can run those calculations. We've been doing it. Our group has been doing hundreds of hours of calculation about this. So we, so we know the numbers now. We just got to get the system right that will pay what it takes. And whether it's a feed-in tariff that does that or a PBI like they have in New York now, uh, we've got to pick that one that, that pays the least and pay that. Now, we, we can't do wishful thinking and say, well, we wish it cost the same as fossil fuels. The clean energy future is going to cost more than a fossil fuel future if you just talk about market costs. Now, if you talk about the cost of pollution, the cost of ill health, the cost of losing 25 communities in New Jersey, 
that, that according to a recent study are going to be uninhabitable uh, during this century. Uh, the cost of another superstorm, Sandy, which cost this state $57 billion and 50 deaths. We have to talk about those costs and do a cost-benefit analysis. But the, the choice we're facing now is we know the way we're incentivizing solar vastly overpays for it uh, if we were to continue it into the future. We can't do that. Uh, I hope we can come to an agreement someday with the rate council that we have to scientifically do the calculations and figure out which system is going to pay solar exactly what it needs and not a dollar more. Okay, I'll ask, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. Bob. Yeah, I'm going to jump in on that. So I think we're talking about how important it is to move to a competitive procurement process. There's different flavors of it, feed-in tariffs, there's auctions, there's different mechanisms. And the point is that they induce competition, they reveal prices in a way that's more transparent, and they lead to innovation and cost reduction. So those, and the advantage that we have right now, sitting here in New Jersey with a new administration that cares a lot about this and also cares about affordability, is that we can take advantage of the fact that other people have been doing this for a while. We don't have to go first. When we did RPS, we didn't know what that mechanism would eventually look like. I'm sorry, the rec RECs. Um, so now we, we have models and we have, nobody's got all the answers, but it doesn't mean that we can't be learning from other states. And I can't help but read a quote that I found um, in the offshore wind industry in the UK, there was a feed-in tariff model and they moved to an auction model. And so this auction, they had an auction in 2015, they had one again in September of 2017. The prices between 2015 and 2017 were cut in half. And we kind of read those numbers and we just assume it's bigger turbines and better technology. Some of it is, but they, this quote I like, um, raised the fact that policies matter. And so that's why I think our work in New Jersey is to make sure we get really smart. I sometimes say sensible. It would even better be better to have really smart policies. Um, but they attributed, the quote is, the trend in this decline in costs in offshore wind, dramatic decline, is driven by a shift to auctions that are doing a better job of revealing the true cost of generation than the former feed-in tariff schemes. So I don't know what the answer is. We should look carefully at different mechanisms, but that's what we want to get to. Actually, we sort of have that system for the uh, basic generation system now, an auction system, and it's worked pretty well. And, and for offshore wind, you know, yeah. as, as provided for in the law. Ross. And, and I, I want to clarify something. Uh, you know, if we talk about tariffs, tariffs can be auction-driven. So there are, there are hybrids that, that can be used to, as you say, reveal the true cost. If I may, I'd just like to pick up from your, your quote there. Um, so it's, it's a, a great point that you've made, but I'd just like to also illustrate or, or, or underscore that um, prior to that transition, um, there was huge concern within the offshore wind industry. There was a lot of nervousness, which means Basically, my message is that we need to have consistency <laughs> of policy. And um, 
our, our business network is just to make it very clear we to differentiate we are we are only focused on offshore wind we consider onshore wind as a separate technology that's almost like solar or, or geothermal we believe that offshore wind whilst it's the same technology of of, of, a, of a generator with turbines using the wind as a resource it's being deployed in a very much more hostile environment the uh, the equipment is much larger you need different skill sets with which to deploy it and it takes longer and it takes more investment which is another reason why we need to have consistent policy one last point if i may which is, I mentioned that the, the states are very fragmented, the pipeline is fragmented, but the supply chain, the supply chain is watching every single state because they're looking at it from the sort of accumulated impact. For example, an installation vessel costs $300 million. They cannot justify the rate of return, sorry, they cannot re justify the investment and get the return on installing one wind farm. They need to have the opportunities up and down the states. So when Governor Murphy uh, signed his executive order for 3,500 megawatts of offshore wind on the 15th day on the job, New Jersey came very much in the spotlight and back on the map. And everybody in our industry, in the offshore wind industry, has very high expectations because it's creating the demand to help justify the investment into the supply chain, which will lower the cost. And the industry needs consistency in policy. It cannot take ups and downs and stops and starts. One more point just to elaborate here, consistency of policy. So this, if, if we're going to be a clean energy state, you know, we're going to have to have a standard way that we talk about the benefits of, of clean energy investments. I mean, we cannot be litigating and debating this every time. So if you, if you look at some of the states that are out in front of this, like New York and Massachusetts, you know, they, they talk about what they're doing, the investments that they're making, and they talk about the benefits. They talk about the health benefits. They talk about the emissions benefits. They talk about the savings to the energy system. You have got to have that kind of mindset, I think, as a state, um, to be able to really do this at any level of uh, velocity. And it's going to take work and time. A number of states have gone through, you know, pr lengthy proceedings where they, they try to figure this out. And, you know, Stephanie will hire someone that says, you know, it's worth three cents. And Lyle will hire somebody that says it's worth 24 cents. And, you know, th there's going to have to, and, and nobody will be right and nobody will be wrong. But at the end of the day, you still have, you, you come up with this is the way we're going to do it as a state. These are the standards. This is the way we're going we're gonna to proceed going forward. And I, th I think that's very important. So, you know, in addition to all the other things the board has to do, I think, you know, whether it's a value of solar proceeding or more of a, a, you know, a value of renewables proceeding more broadly, I think we need to have that standard for how we talk about it. Uh, on that point, uh, several people have mentioned the, uh, the increasing workload of uh, the BPU. Does the, does the administration need to take a real serious look at that agency and uh, infuse it with more funding? Or otherwise, all these goals are going to slip uh, with or on the vine? I do think the BPU needs to 
time to hire a bunch of people. I know they're doing that now. They're, I know they're bringing a lot, a lot of new people on board. I think they're also looking to bring some consultants of their own on board um, in order to, uh, to be able to bring those resources. I mean, my office is only 15 lawyers. We're not, we're not big, but, but we expand our ability to handle things by having a, you know, a whole bunch of consultants that we, that we can retain. And I think BPU is starting to do some of that. And, and, and they will, you know, they'll get it done. They will. There's some really great people over there. It's just that um, they're going to have to be told what comes first. And everybody, of course, wants their thing to come first. Um, and they're going to, it, it's going to take time. Think about it. You know, when we were talking about um, OREX a few years ago, when, when, when our first, uh, our statute was, was passed, most of the, the things we were talking about in terms of how we were going to structure that OREC program, the offshore wind recs, um, most of them have been now precluded by um, changes in federal law. So we kind of have to go back to the drawing board and figure out how are we going to pay for this. And so that takes time. It's not just a question of hiring some staff. You know, you've got to get the right people in the room to talk about it. There are plenty of people in the industry who can help as well. You can have a stakeholder process. You can, you can develop it. It's not something you can just say, okay, here's how we're going to do it, and then, and then write it down. So I do think BPU needs resources, absolutely. Um, I think that they're, from what I see, they are getting some. They're getting to hire some people, and that's great. They're getting to hire some consultants, which is great. But, um, you know, it, 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 there, is, there is a need to put thought into all of this, um, and that, you know, you can have a bunch of great people brought on board, and it's still going to take time. Ross, uh, you were mentioning uh, building the supply chain. Ha what impact has, I mean, New Jersey isn't alone in uh, promoting offshore wind. Governor Cuomo came up with, I think it was 2,400 megawatts. Is that, uh, are those kind of commitments enough to get this supply chain going so people actually come here and invest money? The answer is yes, um, <clears throat> but one of the one of the challenges, really, and I'm I'm guilty of this. I used to work for the state of Maryland, in full disclosure, and I was uh, director of clean energy. Uh, and one of the things is that w we all want to have all the jobs in our state, and frankly, it's unrealistic, and. It's very difficult to, it's very difficult for the, for the politicians and, and for the state agencies to try to see this in a more holistic approach. So I think if we, so, so New Jersey has done uh, an incredible job by just having this commitment for the 3,500 because that's the greatest amount that is committed right now. So as I said, the spotlight is on New Jersey and that's where the supply chain could easily gravitate towards that. But to, to, to have it exclusively is unrealistic. And I think that um, yesterday I was in Houston and I was uh, working with or talking with many of the ship and vessel um, builders and operators, and they were complaining. They're complaining about the fragmented approach. And so to answer your question, the, the supply chain is asking for a regional, a regional approach to this because 
The offshore wind industry, even with all the commitments that have been made up and down our, our um, northeastern mid-Atlantic shore, there's only enough really for one or you know one supplier of a particular service or one one investment in one installation vessel to supply all the states. So, and there's enough there's enough potential here and enough market to go around for everybody. So I think it's a question of, um, so in summary, New Jersey certainly will be able to secure um, a significant portion of, of uh, the jobs, uh, but there will be other states as well that will, will be looking for that as well. Go ahead, Don. I, I actually have a question about offshore wind, if that's okay. <laughs> sure. Uh, all right. What does it cost? Yeah, I'm reading uh, news reports out of Northern Europe where they hold auctions for the subsidy that'll be paid for offshore wind from the North Sea and seeing uh, crazy low numbers uh, just recently. Uh, you know, in 2017, one of the auctions, the average uh, price was $4.67 per megawatt hour. That's half a cent uh, as the only subsidy over the cost of wholesale power and the largest uh, bidders were at zero. Uh, now, I know New Jersey's a whole lot different, uh, different wind resource, different cost of labor and everything, but are, are costs really going down that rapidly? They are. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's about, and, and that's about all I can really say, because <laughs> you've, an, you've, you've answered your own question, which is New Jersey is different than Europe. That the United States market is different. We have, we have completely different soil structures. We have a different uh, supply chain. We have different policies. So all of this will feed into the cost. What I can share with you is that, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, the Europeans have done us a favor. They have really advanced the technology. They continue to advance the technology. And we have demand. We have scale here, which they don't have. They have, taken, they have taken their wind resource areas, which are all fairly close by to their shore, and now they have a choice, which is they go further out to sea, which means it's a higher cost, or they come to the United States, and where we have scale. With scale, we can get economies of, we can get economy, we can save money through the economies of scale. But it will really depend on the wind resource that is off the coast. It is site-specific. Um, there is higher wind resources um, further north than, say, in Maryland. That has to be matched up with the turbine, the appropriate turbine. And it's also dependent on the transmission line and how far the, trans how far the wind farm is off the shore and coming into um, the point of grid connection. So there are many, many different factors, and of course the cost of labor as well. Since you mentioned the transmission line, what are your thoughts on the proposal to build the offshore backbone transmission line, uh, which uh, some people advocate line? and some offshore development developers are opposed to? You mean the original? 
backbone from from Norfolk to New York? Yeah, it's uh, it's come back. It was actually in the bill until uh, yesterday. Well, <clears throat> that's not how I understand it. But but to answer your question about the original idea of having a subsea backbone transmission line, I think that um, that. As, we've, as Stephanie has talked about, you know, uh, we, we need to be mindful of our wires and our pipes. I'm not so much interested in the pipes, but the wires I am. Um, and let's, let's face it, all, the transmission, the grid all over the country is old and it needs to be updated. So I think that we should not dismiss anything. We should, and again, Stephanie, as you mentioned, we should be looking at planning this, and we should take a we should take a, a deep breath and see what makes uh, sense in terms of um, investment and long-term service for the future. The future of what this transmission is expected to hold. Yeah, as long as we're talking about that subject, what are the costs of modernizing that aging transmission system? to integrate renewables in a big way. Uh, a PGM study that was done for 30% renewables by 2026 said that PJM-wide, that's uh, all or parts of 14 states, uh, the cost by 2030 would be 8.6 billion. That, so that's a PJM study which was done by GE and a number of others. So there are costs to integrating all of this offshore wind and solar into the grid. That'll be an additional cost that, that has to be paid. Um, can, can I get my slides back? Is there anybody there who can do that? Because uh, I, I, I have one last slide that I saved <laughs> for the end uh, about cost. Because, you know, there's no question that that's the issue of the day. It was really clear yesterday that, that we're, in, we're in a position now where we're looking at this future, uh, whether it's 80% renewable by 2050 or 100% renewable, or if it's 45 or 50 by 2030, cost is going to be a huge, huge issue. Uh, and there was interesting testimony yesterday from Ralph Izzo, uh, and I'm not sure I'm remembering this right, but I believe he said that over the last... A couple of decades, the cost of uh, electric power had been reduced by 18 to 20 percent. Does anybody remember? Yeah, what, uh, 18 to 20 percent. So if we've lowered it by 18 to 20 percent, and we can do energy efficiency that potentially can save 20 percent uh, on people's energy bills. Uh, so, uh, but that's going to cost something too. So let's say we can reduce bills by another 10 or 15 percent. Now we're 30 to 35 percent below where we were a couple of decades ago. Then we start adding. Uh, our projections show that if we build solar toward an 80 percent by 2050 goal, those costs are going to peak at around 1.1 cents per kilowatt hour. That's about a 6 percent increase for a residential customer. So if we took off 30 to 35 and then we add back in 6 percent, and I don't know what offshore wind is going to cost, because you wouldn't answer my question, but <laughs> but, uh, but let's say. <laughs> I'm, I'm the wrong guy. You need to talk yeah. to the developer. Okay. Well, we will. But, but let's just pretend that that's another 6%, you know, with all of these new technologies that are coming out of Europe. God bless them. 
Uh, so we, we may be in a situation where we can have the clean energy if we do this right and still be less than we were paying for electricity uh, 10 or 20 years ago. Now the slide that just up addresses affordability. Um, now, now we hear a lot about how New Jersey ha is one of the most expensive electric rates in the country. Uh, actually, as of 2015, we're the 10th highest rates in the country. But that doesn't tell the, uh, the whole story. We're already one of the most efficient states, so we actually have lower rates of electric consumption. So if you combine consumption with rates and talk about where our bills fall related to other states, we actually rank 39th. We're the 39th highest in terms of, of uh, expenditures per capita. Expenditures on electricity per capita were 39th in the nation. We're also a wealthier state than many of the other states. And so in terms of affordability, we rank, I forget what it is, we rank 47th out of 51 states plus DC uh, in terms of our percentage of personal income spent on electricity. I think it's something around three to four percent. So what I'm saying overall is we can afford it. It's affordable in New Jersey can to go this way. Stephanie? That, so that is exactly what we cannot do, okay? We can't throw numbers out. Well, if it's this, then, then it's another 6%, and then it's another. We need to deal with real numbers, okay? And the reason why we are now uh, much lower is because natural gas prices have fallen, okay? So you're talking about replacing the fossil fuels here. You're not, those numbers are going to be gone before you even get started. And, and if you, and if you, uh, Ralph's number, I think, was only talking about maybe, maybe generation, and again, that's because natural gas prices have fallen. And it doesn't, I mean, costs of, tr of transmission have skyrocketed. Um, when you look at people's actual bills, their bills have not fallen. Um, and we're, you know, right now in my office, I've got two major rate cases. I've got a $2.68 billion infrastructure um, filing from, from PSE&G. I've got two more infrastructure filings coming in from Atlantic City Electric and JCP&L. Those are all about the pipes and the wires. They have nothing to do with clean energy. And so these numbers, you, we can't just throw around, well, if we do this and it'll be that, and then look, it all pays for itself. It's not true. Let's be honest. Let's say this is going to be very expensive. It's still something we have to do because we can't have the planet disappear, but let's be honest about what it's going to cost, and then we can start talking about what to do first, what to do next, how to do it in a more rational, measured way, and then we can actually make some progress. As long as we are still just throwing numbers out, we're never going to get to that point. I, I want to agree with Stephanie that this has to be looked at thoroughly with all costs included, and it has to be taken very, very seriously. Um, I almost made a chart with this, but um, I didn't. But we can do this with audience participation. Right now, how much are we paying per megawatt hour for solar? Anybody know? What this, just the subsidy, just the, just the incentive. How much is it? Including net metering? No, without net metering, let's do that first. How much are we paying per megawatt hour? About 200, 220, okay, so that's what we're paying. And when Lyle has his new feed-in tariff or auction system, um, how much will we be paying 
when under a new system? What would be a starting value? We all have done projections, so we know what the numbers could be, the range of numbers, but I want to know your number. Uh, I'm not sure I have the numbers. Yes, you do. Uh, uh, come on, Lyle, you I'm, just I'm got not on sure. I, I think it's in the range of, uh, of 60 or 70, yeah. something like that. That's the same range we had. We had 55 to 80 something. But it, and, and the beauty of the, a new system is that what you need for utility grid supply, solar, is going to be a different number than what you need for residential rooftop or commercial. And you can actually incent it to say, actually, we would like to see it um, in certain preferred locations and not in other locations. So you get siting kind of built into that. Anyway, so we're going from a 200, 220 subsidy immediately as soon as we start a new approach. That's just a policy change. That's not the economics of solar. It's a policy change, and we get to about 70 or 60. Offshore wind is going to start around, I'll throw out a number. Do you have a number? Well, I can't put a number because it's not for me, it's the developers. Okay, we can do that. Give me a number. Somebody give me a number for offshore wind, the starting incentive in 2021, 22, when we would be starting, what would be the incentive required for offshore wind? Give me a number. What? 130 is just the incentive, or is that the all-in cost? But that's the all-in? That's total cost. So the incentive is about 100, because 30 of it's energy. Is that about right? Okay. You think that's too low? Some people think it, think it might be lower. Anyway, so you get the picture. We're going from $200 to about 70 for solar to about 100. But that 100 by 2030, as you scale up an industry and build a supply chain, is supposed to be around 40 or 50. So that's what's going to change. That's why this math actually does add up. The cost of solar, building offshore wind, and there's another important piece which is, if those are the numbers for in-state resources, what does it cost today to contract for a 10 megawatt or 20 megawatt wind farm in PJM? Anybody know? What would be the incentive that we would be paying for that? Give me a number. $10. Compare that to the 200, we're going to 70, we'll start at offshore wind at 100, get down. We can get renewables done at $10 now, and that's going to go down to about $1 or $2 by 2030. That's all of PJM is a huge resource. And by having a combination of the three, we get growing solar at a fast rate, have jobs in New Jersey, offshore wind, have jobs in New Jersey, and maybe a third or some portion of it is coming from elsewhere, and that's how we get to, we can get for the amount we've been paying for 5% of our generation, we can get to 50% for the same amount of money. Think about that. Right. Uh, just, yeah, I, I, look, I thought your, the Rethink study was really excellent and you guys did a really comprehensive job. You know, the one point that I disagreed with, and maybe Stephanie, you too, I think people are underestimating what the cost of utility scale solar is in New Jersey. Um, it's not anywhere near what you're doing in, in the southwest, in the southeast, where you're building, you know, hundreds of megawatts, um, you know, in open land, uh, you know, in sparsely populated areas. Um, you know, we're very active in the utility scale space here in New Jersey. 
and um, you know we're 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 number we're we're, we're lucky if you can get break two dollars a watt uh, on some of the install costs. And again, you're talking about the most densely populated state in the country. There's not a lot of land. The land you can get is uh, it's it's costly. Interconnection costs are going up. You know we're a high high cost state. So I, I think this is some of the things we need to be looking at collectively is getting some good assumptions on that. Uh, I wish it was, you know, and even even a couple of states south, we're seeing much lower costs than what we have. You know, you don't you can go to Maryland and you can build for lower costs, but I'm not we're not seeing that here yet. And so I think that's something we have to keep in mind when we're thinking about uh, you know what the costs are going to be going forward. What about the uh, question about um, we're not going to be able to meet uh, some of these renewable energy targets by the dates like 2025, 35% with in-state resources. And as a result, we're going to be sending our dollars out of state and the jobs are going to occur out of state. I mean, Bob, you mentioned 2021. For offshore wind, I, I think that's a pretty uh, ambitious target. The developers seem to say 2023, last time I talked to them. Yeah, well, that, that, in that case, but we'd still have to ramp up in two years to it's meet a, that. It's a very thorny question. Uh, you know, Stephanie, of course, is trying to protect ratepayers, and that's extremely important. So, from that point of view, we want the cheapest resources, which sometimes are out of state. But we also don't want to, uh, New Jersey ratepayers be paying for benefits that occur out of state. You know, we're, when, when we pay these incentives for renewable energy, we're paying for a service, we're paying for something. Um, and, and we've talked about, you know, the benefits, those benefits are the things we're paying for. So we got to make sure that we get what we're paying for. And if we pay for West Virginia or Illinois onshore wind, uh, the jobs are going there, the economic growth and the business growth is going there, um, the local pollution benefits are going there, and we're not, we're not getting delivered the services that we paid for. So that, that's not a simple answer. You know, we want to pay less and we want to pay for the cheapest resources, but we want to get what we pay for. There's got to be some, I think, some compromise. What we have proposed is that we make it sort of a market-based. We identify the services that we're getting and what they're worth, and then we only pay for what we actually get. So if we were paying for uh, onshore wind in Illinois, we would pay less than we would pay for a wind turbine in New Jersey because they're not sending us all, they're not delivering the benefits. So it's sort of a market-based approach like that where we identify the values and only pay for the values that we actually get. Okay, we're running out of time. Actually, we've gone over, uh, but I should ask some more questions from the audience. And somebody asked about community so solar. Talk about the potential of community solar in New Jersey. Is it realistic? To, to me, that there's a lot of complexity to that one, too. There are some pros and cons that, that have to be very, very carefully worked out. Um, I'll leave it there and let Larry. Yeah, I mean, other states are doing it. I'm sure we can figure out how to do it. Uh, I think that, you know, the more we can be thinking about larger scale systems that are not necessarily on site, 
and how it's real easy for somebody to just you know, check a box and say, yeah, I want some of that power, and it doesn't have to be on top of my house, uh, and we figure out a way to compensate the utility for that, that that's a, that's a winning formula. Now we have to kind of figure that all out, uh, and, and I think that this, the, the bill at least sets the table for some of that, but yeah, I would be thinking that virtual net metering, community choice, aggregation where municipalities can purchase, um, where you get the utilities involved in procurement, those are going to be all part of the solution if you want to really scale solar to meet these aggressive goals. What we want to make sure of is that that doesn't become simply a formula for a transfer of wealth from all ratepayers to a few ratepayers. Uh, it's a little too complicated to get into here, but, but that's something we have to be very, very careful about. Okay, uh, it's 10.15. I guess we uh, overextended our welcome. Uh, but I want to thank the uh, panel. I thought they were terrific. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, everyone. I also want to thank Tom. Um, so Thank you, Tom. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from NJ Spotlight. Be sure to join us for the next NJ Spotlight Roundtable on Friday, March 16th from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. New Jersey's Energy Future, Modernizing the Energy Infrastructure. For more information, visit njspotlight.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.